The following audio is from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Acts is available at actschurchleander.com. Well, we are in the second to last week of the first half of our journey through the entire narrative of Scripture. Uh, So we've got one more week in the Old Testament, uh, and then we're done. Then we'll have done it. The the first half of this year, we've spent studying the Old Testament, so we've only got one more week, and, and we'll have gone through it, so... Way to go. Uh, this summer, though, we're going to be in a series called Acts Stories, and very excited for this series. What we're going to be doing is we're going to say, all right, so we spent the first half of the year looking at God's story and looking at his sort of narrative of, of how he's worked in the world. What does it mean for us now to live into that story? What does it mean for our individual stories to fit into what God's doing? And so we're actually going to be hearing from, from, from many of you, from our brothers and sisters here uh, at, at Acts Church Lander. We're going to have videos sharing their stories of what it's looked like for them to, to pursue God. So I'm, I'm very excited Uh, for us to do that. So we'll look forward to that. Uh, But before we get to that, we're going to stay rooted in the beginning of our story as the people of God, which as we've discussed, uh, begins way back in the Old Testament with the people of Israel, right? That God creates the nation of Israel. He delivers them from slavery. He establishes them them as a kingdom, but then they, they split into two. And pretty soon after that, they get taken into exile by the Babylonians for a few years. And then after they've been in exile for a few years, the, the Persian Empire ends up dominating the globe. And they tell the Israelites, hey, you can go back home. You can go back and build your temple. And so that's what we talked about last week uh, was the folks who went home to, to build God's temple. And uh, what's kind of interesting, though, is, is last week's message and this week's message happen at about the same time. See, uh, last week's message follows the narrative of the people who went home back to Jerusalem. This week's message, the story of Esther, uh, it happens at roughly the same time, give or take like 20, 30 years, but it happens in a different place in the globe. These are the, the Jews that opted not to go home, but said, hey man, friends are here, family's here, we're kind of used to it, and so they stayed in exile in Persia. And so this is basically happening at the same time, just in a different spot on the globe. And so we're going to look at the story of Esther. Now, I, uh, I preached a sermon on Esther uh, back in September, and uh, I'm sure you all remember it perfectly. Um, and, but, uh, so anyway, so if you don't like this one, you can just go back and listen to that one. And if you don't like that one, I can't help you, okay? So, um, but you can check that out. But we're going to do a different spin on it today and, and look at it from another angle. Uh, so before we do that, though, let me just uh, summarize the story so far because we kind of, the text we read, we just jumped in right in the middle of the story. So let me, let me summarize what's gone on so far. Uh, so it's, it's 480 B.C., uh, I mentioned Persia's the, the dominant empire at this time. Uh, the, the king of Persia is Xerxes. If you were to read through the book of Esther, they call him a different name, but it's, it's the same dude. It's just the, the Hebrew version of his name. And, uh, and he's the king. He's, he's running the show. And, and anyways, the story starts with Xerxes. He throws a big party for his army. And, and they're all hanging out. They're having fun. It's, it's, a, it's a four-month frat party, basically, is what's going on. Like, it is, it is a long party. And, and there's this one point in the party where, where Xerxes is drunk, and he says, hey, you know, my wife is, is really hot. And he says, I know. Let's go get her and have her come strip for me and all my friends. So he sends his servants to go do that, right? Well, needless to say, Queen Vashti was her name. She, she said, nah, I'm not going to do that. And, and, and so she doesn't come. Well, the king says, well, what do I do? He calls his, his, his council together and he says, what do I do? My wife didn't listen to me. And uh, this true story, you can read this in Esther. The, the council says, well, king, you know, if, if it gets out that the king's wife isn't listening to him, nobody else's wives are going to listen to them anymore either. And so it's just going to be chaos. And so we can't have that, king. So, so you got to discipline her, right? So this is what happens. It's a true story. And so the king says, all right, fine. And so he says, you're no longer queen. You're done. And so, so she's no longer queen. She's gone. Uh, we assume she's killed, but they don't specifically say that in the story. So she's gone. So now the king has to find a new queen. 
And so what he does is he, he sets up uh, basically a, uh, a Persia's next top queen competition, right? And, and, and so basically he sets up this competition and the next one gets to be the new queen. Uh, so he and his people, they set up a contract with ABC and, um, and they, they go around the kingdom and they, they gather up a, a bunch of, of young ladies to, to be a part of his harem. And then from that harem, he's going to pick one of the girls to be a queen. And one of the girls that gets picked to be a part of the harem is a young Jewish girl named Esther. Now, Esther is a Jewish girl. She was raised by her loving uncle Mordecai. Both her parents died when she was young. And so her uncle Mordecai is like a father to her. Uh, and before she goes to be a part of, this, uh, of, of the king's harem and to see if she'll be queen, um, her, her uncle tells her, says, hey, listen, uh, you should probably just not let them know that you're Jewish. Like, I'm not sure it's going to work out for you. It, it may actually harm you. You may actually be killed because of it. So why don't you just downplay that identity for a little bit right now? And she, she listens to her uncle and says, okay. And so, so then the, the competition ensues. And I'll spare you the details of how it works because I like to keep my messages PG-13. Uh, but, but you can guess, okay? You can guess. Uh, and, and Esther ends up winning. She ends up winning and is now the queen of Persia. All right, so, so this happens. Esther's queen, enter the antagonist. All right, so she's the protagonist we got. The antagonist, Haman, comes in. So she's queen, but second in command of the whole Persian empire is this guy named Haman. And Haman is bad news. He's, he's, he's so prideful. He makes demands that everybody, whenever he walks in towns, his demand is that everybody has to bow down to him. And everybody does bow down to him except for one guy, Esther's uncle Mordecai. He says, you, you're not a man of respect. You're not someone that, that I'm going to bow down to. And so Haman gets so ticked off that Mordecai won't bow down to him that he says, you know what? I'm not just going to kill Mordecai. I'm going to kill his entire people. I'm going to wipe out the entire nation of Israel. And so Haman, uh, through his craftiness, we don't have time to go into it, but he convinces King Xerxes to not only allow his people to kill the, the Jews, but also to kill them and gain a reward for doing it. And so Haman gets the king to legalize a genocide. And it's set to happen 11 months from, from where we're at in the story. And so Mordecai gets wind of this, that this is going to happen to his people, and he freaks out. And so that's where we're at in our text for today. And, and what we'll see in our text, in the lives of Mordecai and Esther, we're going to see three truths kind of come out of it. And these three truths really build on one another. And I think they have a lot to say for our own lives. So here's the three truths. Humility leads to perspective. Perspective leads to action. Action leads to deliverance. Humility leads to perspective. Perspective leads to action. Action leads to deliverance. All right, so here we go. Humility leads to perspective. If you have your Bibles, look with me at verses 1 through 3. Otherwise, we'll have it up here. It says this, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. All right, so, so Mordecai gets wind that because of Haman, his entire people are going to be destroyed in a few months. So how does he react? He rips off his clothes... He throws on some, some itchy sackcloth. He dumps ashes on his head, and it says he goes walking around the city with a loud and bitter cry. And what's going on here? What's he doing? 
Well, the book of Esther, if we were to look at it from a purely literary standpoint, has, has a, a really a major theme in it of pride versus humility. That, that in the antagonist with, with Haman, you have the embodiment of pride. And in Mordecai and Esther, you have the embodiment of humility. And so what we're going to see in this story is this, this compare and contrast between pride and humility. And so, so Haman is the embodiment of everything the Bible says about pride. Let's just look at that real quick. He's, he's, he's self-promoting, right? Not only, I've already mentioned this, but he makes everyone bow down to him. And there's actually a point in the story of Esther where he invites all his friends over to his house. He says, hey guys, come on over. Let's have dinner. We're going to hang out. And the sole purpose of him having his friends over is so that he can brag about all of his accomplishments. That's what the Bible says. He just spends the whole evening just talking about all the great things he's done, all the rewards that he's been given by the king. Okay, so, so he's self-promoting. But not only that, he's self-conscious, right? You see how insecure he is? One guy won't bow down to him. One guy. And so he, he swears to kill an entire nation, right? He can't take criticism. He's self-conscious. He's self-absorbed. Absolutely everything about him in this story is all about him getting his forget everyone else. He's the embodiment of pride. He's the definition of pride. And uh, I think C.S. Lewis offers us a helpful definition of pride here. Pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. This is Haman. And so we're meant to look at him and then contrast him with Mordecai. And Mordecai, in our text that we just read, he's the embodiment of humility. What does he do? He wears sackcloth and ashes. And then he goes out in the city and he's just crying out loud. He says, I don't know, he's drawn a lot of attention to himself. That doesn't seem very humble. No, no, no. He's doing it for others. Because he knows that he's in a unique position where if he can get a message to Esther, if he can make a big enough deal outside the gates, Esther's going to hear what's going on and she's going to be able to deliver his people. And so he, he humbles himself, he lowers himself for the sake of other people. See, Mordecai's humility gives him a proper perspective on his purpose at this stage in life. He doesn't storm the gates with a big army. He doesn't just sulk away and cry in a corner and think, poor me, poor me. No, no, no. He humbly does what he uniquely can for the sake of others. Once again, Lewis is helpful here. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. Now listen, let me say this. I'm not advocating for humility over pride, and this is just some nice moral sermon about being a good person, though you should, and you should be humble, that's a good thing. No, no, no. I'm advocating for humility over pride because without it, God will not use you in this world. Without humility, God will not use you in this world. See, since... St. Augustine, the Christian church has understood pride to be the source of all other sins. It's a sin from which all other sins stem. And why is that? Because pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. See, if, if you are concentrated on nothing but yourself, then you aren't looking up to God, then you aren't looking out to the needs of others. You see, pride is spiritual death. But humility, on the other hand, humility is life-giving. Humility is a life lived open to God, open to the needs of others. See, when you're humble, you become the sort of clay that God can mold and use in this world. When you're proud, you remain rigid and brittle and breakable. For example, 
Uh, some of you may know that, that I serve on uh, the executive board for an organization called Christian Resource Center. Uh, now, don't judge them for their poor decisions on board members. Um, they're, they're, a great, <laughs> they're a great organization, and uh, basically what, what we do as a board is, is uh, Christian Resource Center oversees uh, like 10 different nonprofits that, that are housed up at uh, Twin Lakes um, Fellowship. It's right there by Twin Lakes YMCA, if you know where that's at. So, so we oversee any of the nonprofits there that really the goal is to offer complete care to our community um, from beginning to end. So there's job training, and there's ESL, and there's a daycare, and there's just, I mean, anything, you name it, we got it there. And we just help coordinate those efforts. Well, uh, one of the, these nonprofits that's part of there is called LifeBridge Job Corps. And, uh, and they teach ESL, and they do job training, and they, nine times out of ten, get people good jobs out of their classes. So they train them for about a quarter, and then, then they get to go, and they have fruitful employment, which is, is a really cool thing. And they also uh, uh, share the gospel with them. They, they share the gospel with them. So it's a, it's a great ministry. And uh, the director of LifeBridge Job Corps asked me to lead the prayer at their graduation service a couple weeks ago. And, uh, and I said, sure, you know. And I said, just, let me just ask you, you just want me to pray? Is that, you know, it's a service, a pastor, you just want me to pray, right? And, and she said, yeah. And then she goes, oh, and actually, you know, could you also run the soundboard and the video? And, and would you DJ the reception afterwards? Uh, true story. And, uh, and I'll be honest, I remember I, I, I said yes, but the, just full disclosure here, church. I remember I honestly started thinking, I was like, so you want me to come to your service, pray for 30 seconds, and then run back and, and run the soundboard? Like, people aren't going to hear me speak. There's people together and I'm not going to be up front? Like, what are you talking about? How's your event going to succeed without my beautiful voice conveying God's word to people? Like, I just thought like, what, what a waste. But begrudgingly, I went, and I said my little prayer for 30 seconds, and then I ran back, and I, and I worked the dials and set up the video and did my thing. And guess what? As I, as I sat behind the soundboard, I heard from, heard from people from nine different countries in eight different languages talk about how not only had they found work, but that they'd heard about Jesus and believed in him and became Christians. And I remember, man, I'm sitting there working the board, and I just, you know, getting all misty. And I'm thinking, man, what a waste it would have been for me to open my mouth for any longer than I did, right? What a waste. Man, I, I was like, what a privilege it is that God would just let me see what he's doing. That God would let me just have any part in this evening just to witness what he's doing in the lives of these people. See, pride said, hey, Gabe, you're not speaking. This event is going to be lame. But God said, sit down, work the controls, and watch what I'm doing. See, pride is spiritual death. Humility is life-giving. Humility is a life lived open to God and to the needs of others. And so let me just ask you, if you're feeling far from God, I'd encourage you to see where pride has creeped in in your life. If you're feeling aimless as you seek to serve others, I'd encourage you to see where pride has sneaked in in your life. And see, and some people say, well, I, I don't think I'm better than everyone else. I, that, that's fine. I, you say, I think I'm worse than everyone else. That's another form of pride. See, there's arrogance and there's self-deprecation. But if all you're thinking is, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me, that's another form of pride. You're still focused on you. So God says, get humble. Learn from others. Look up to him. Look out to serve others. 
And as you do that, the perspective you gain will lead you to take wise actions in this world. As you do that, the perspective you gain will lead you to take wise actions in this world. Look at Esther in our text. Okay, so she gets word from Mordecai that her people are going to be slaughtered if she doesn't do something. But she says, hey, if I just go in approaching the king, um, I'm going to be killed. Like, this isn't going to work out. Not only will the people be killed, but I probably will be too. And Mordecai says, yeah, sorry, that's the risk you got to take. That's the risk you got to take. And so here's Esther's response to him, verses 15 and 16. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Now notice what Esther does here. Right? She says, hey, I've got action to take. I've got stuff i got to do. But before I do anything, I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray. I'm going to get humble. I'm going to listen to God. And then I'll take action. And then I'll take the plunge. See, another great theme in the book of Esther is this idea of cultural discernment. Of what it means to be a part of the people of God in a culture that is not part of the people of God. That is perhaps antagonistic towards the people of God. And so she wrestles with this tension here. And we talked a lot about that a couple weeks ago with uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, but this is actually on a whole nother level. See, those guys, they were told, hey, bow down to this idol. And they said, no, we'll resist this cultural activity. But what Esther's trying to do here is change a cultural activity. That's a whole nother level. That's a whole nother level. And so how does she do it? Well, she humbles herself first. We saw that. And then we, don't, we didn't read this in our text, but what she does is she approaches the king and he, he lets her come and, he, and she invites him and Haman to come to her house, uh, her house, her part of the palace, uh, for, for a banquet, for dinner, for a couple nights. So what does she do? She cooks them a meal. She serves. She gets humble. She serves. And then at the right moment, she exposes Haman. She speaks the truth to save her people. She gets humble, she serves, and then she speaks the truth. Let's just think about this for a second, church. Humility leads to service, leads to speaking the truth. That's how you change culture. Humility, service, Speaking the truth, that's how you change culture. Now listen, I'm not convinced that a small church in Leander, Texas is going to change the world or the culture of America or the culture of Leander. Okay, I don't, I don't, I don't think we're, I mean, we're awesome, but not that awesome, right? Uh, but, but I know that each of you are in different micro-cultures. You're in different networks of relationships where you wish things could change, right? It could be your marriage. It could be your workplace. It could be with your kids, could be at school, could be with your hobbies, whatever it is. Could be friendships, could be in-laws, probably in-laws, right? There's, there's relationships that, that you wish you could change. Well, I think Esther gives us an incredible model here. How about in our attempts to change microcultures that we find ourselves in, we don't bark and bite, but instead we come humble. We serve, and we speak the truth at the right time. What would that look like for you? Come humble to serve, to speak the truth at the right time. See, this is exactly what Esther did. It's exactly what she did. And she had way more on the line than you or I do. Come humble, serve, speak the truth. Now, lest you think this is just a message on the virtue of humility, let's recognize where Esther's humility and ultimately her people's deliverance comes from. 
Where does that come from? Look with me back at verse 14. Mordecai says to Esther, and this is what ultimately moves her to action. Verse 14. He says this, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now I love that. That's Mordecai's way of saying, hey, there's a bigger hand at work here. Right? It's not a mistake that you're placed where you are right now, Esther. The God who's in the business of delivering people has you in this time, in this place, to deliver his people. And see, when Esther gets that, that's what leads her to take action. When Esther recognizes that God is at work specifically at this time to deliver his people, that's when she goes to work to bring about change in her kingdom. Here's my point. When you get a glimpse of God's timing of deliverance, that's the only thing that enables you to be humble enough to take the action he's called you to. And you get a glimpse of God's timing of deliverance. That's what enables you to be humble enough to take the action he's called you to. You say, what are you talking about? What do you mean timing of God's deliverance? Look with me at Romans 5, verses 6 through 10. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, so much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. See, this is why the timing of God's deliverance makes you humble. See, verse 6 there, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, that, that phrase, at the right time, is just one word in Greek. There's two words for time in Greek. There's one is chronos, where we get our word chronological, right? So it's kind of early time. But then the other one is, is kairos, or kairos, or however you want to say it. It doesn't matter. Lindsay, am I all right? Okay, <laughs> is, 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 is Kairos. And, and, and that's, that's a unique way of looking at time. That's, that's this ultimate sense of time. It's like the, the supreme time. It's like almost a moment where time freezes and, and, a, and a major shift in the globe occurs. It's, it's a Kairos moment. It's an ultimate moment of time. And Romans, 6, Romans 5 verse 6 says, it was that moment of time that God chose to deliver you. It was that moment of time when God chose to deliver you. And what was that moment of time? Verse 6. That moment of time was when uh, you were really strong and you pulled yourself together and you brought yourself up by your own bootstraps. Nope. It says when you were weak. Verses 7 and 8, it says, oh, when you were really morally good and you were following the Ten Commandments perfectly and you were living life right and you had your whole life put together. No, it says when you were a sinner. That's when Christ died for you. That was the right time. When you're a sinner. Okay, so maybe you weren't so strong as a person and and you were maybe morally a little iffy, but you were at least seeking God. You were at least saying, God, I like you and and I think I want to follow you and I think I've figured you out. No, what does it say? Verse 10, you were enemies of God. That was the right time. God said, oh, they're enemies. They hate me. They're spitting on me. That's when I'm going to die for them. That's when I'm going to claim them to be my kids forever. It's in that moment 
That God said, I love you, I forgive you, you are my kid forever through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That God reconciled you on the cross when you were weak, when you were sinful, when you were his enemy. That's when Jesus said, I'm going to the cross. Those people, they hate me, they don't care about me, they've turned their backs on me. Now's the time for me to go to the cross for him. That's the timing of God's deliverance. And when you see that God's deliverance comes to you when you're unworthy of it, which we all are, that's what gives you the necessary humility to be used by him. So let me just tell you all what that looks like for me right now. Um, when I was in second grade, I was asked what I wanted to be when I grew up, uh, as second graders often are. And, uh, and I said that I wanted to be the chaplain for the U.S. men's national team for soccer. That was my dream. And uh, this lady at my church, sweet old lady, uh, my parents gave her a picture of me playing soccer, and she actually got it painted, um, very nice lady, and then framed. And then underneath it, she had this little thing that said, Gabe Casper, future soccer pastor. And that hung above my bed uh, from second grade until high school. And, uh, and so this last week, uh, that's come to a head. Uh, I, I, with the permission of our staff and our elders and most importantly my wife, uh, I accepted a position to, to be a, a part-time volunteer chaplain for the local professional team here in Austin, the Austin Aztecs, uh, and I get to serve them as their chaplain. Now, this is obviously like a dream come true for me, right? Like, like fanboy Gabe is going crazy right now. Uh, but, but not only that, like I get to combine my two favorite things in the world, right? Like the gospel and soccer. It's awesome, right? But I also know uh, that as I enter this club that, that I'm the first chaplain that they've had. And that according to the organization that, that I'm working with to, to infiltrate the club, um, there, there's maybe two active Christians on the team, right? And so I know that, that I got to go in and I got to come humble and I got to serve and then I can speak the truth. And the only way I will do that is not if I'm charming and confident and the cool guy. No, no, no. The only way I do that is if I do it in light of God's timing of deliverance. If I let that keep me humble, that I see when I was weak, God chose me in Christ. That when I was a sinner, Jesus died for me. That when I was an enemy of God, he said, I want to make you my friend so badly that I'm going to give of myself completely for you. See, if I live in light of that, that's what gives you the humility to serve. See, only when you do that, only when you see what God's timing of deliverance is for you, that when you were far from him, he did everything to bring you near. When you see that you, when you were weak, God chose you in Christ. When you were a sinner, that's when Jesus said, I'm going to the cross for them. When you were an enemy of God, that's when he said, I love you so much, I'm giving of myself completely for you. When that's deep in your soul, that's when you have the humility to serve, the humility to speak the truth that God has called you to do in the places where you are. And so may the timing of God's deliverance in Jesus enable you to humbly do what he's called you to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for my friends here. Thank you for your timing of deliverance. That when we were furthest from you, when we weren't even looking for you, you were looking for us. That it's a miracle that we know you. It's a miracle that we know your love and the hope that we have in Jesus. 
Lord, may we be humbled by that. May we live life in light of that. Lord, help us to look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.